Well, if you have your Bible, open it with me to the Gospel of John. Picking up where we left off, we are in John chapter 1. We'll start in a moment in verse 29, John 1, 29 through 34. There are many different titles for Jesus in the New Testament, and every one of them is important. For example, in the Gospels, he is called Emmanuel, or God with us. He's called the bridegroom, the son of man, the son of God, the vine, the good shepherd, the word. In Romans 11, he's called our deliverer. In 1 Corinthians, he's called our rock. In Colossians, he's called the firstborn or preeminent over all creation. In 1 Timothy, he's called mediator. In Hebrews, he's called our great high priest and the author and finisher of our faith. In 1 Peter, he is called the cornerstone. In 1 John, he's called the word of life. And then we get to Revelation, and he is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the faithful and the true, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's called all of these things and so much more. But when John the Baptist introduced Jesus to the people for the very first time, what title did he use in that moment? He called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think we all understand that if you are going to introduce someone publicly, especially someone of great importance, you're not going to use just any title. You're not going to say just anything about them. You're going to reveal, you're going to say that which is considered significant about them. And so it's very interesting that this is the title that John the Baptist used when he introduced Jesus. He used this title because it summarized who Jesus is and why Jesus came. Now, earlier in chapter 1, we were told that John came as a witness to bear witness to the light so that all men might believe. When we come to verse 29, we finally get to hear what that witness was was. For months, John has been preaching, he's been baptizing, and then finally the day has come in which he can say, here he is, the one I've been talking about, the one you've been waiting for, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as we talk about this introduction that John gives to Jesus, there are three things about it that I want us to notice and learn from this morning. First of all, we see a, a shocking declaration. We see what I call a shocking declaration. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the next day means the day after everything we studied last Sunday. This is the day 
after John was uh, interviewed by some of the Jews. This is the day after he said, no, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm just that guy preparing everyone for the coming of the Lord. The next day, the day after that, it says John saw Jesus coming toward him. By the way, I think it's noteworthy that John didn't go to Jesus. Jesus came to him. God always works that way. God always takes the initiative in salvation. He always makes that first move. John sees Jesus coming, and notice what he says. He says, behold. Now, that's not a word that we use much anymore, is it? I kind of wish we would. In fact, you know what I think we all should do? I think we should uh, uh, create a new movement to make that word mainstream again. You think we can do that? I mean, wouldn't that be great? Dinner's on the table. Behold. <laughs> Laundry comes out of the dryer. Behold. In fact, your homework this week, all of you, okay, is to find some time and place to use that word behold this week, all right? So that's, that's your assignment. But this word behold, we don't use it that much anymore, but it means stop, pay attention. Behold means what I'm about to tell you is not just important, but this is of supreme importance. In fact, this word in the Greek is actually an imperative. John was giving them a command. He's ordering them to stop and behold. Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, I have a feeling that many of us have heard this story enough times and we've read these verses enough times that maybe we forget just how shocking it was when John the Baptist identified Jesus in this way. Now, some of you are like me. You are visual learners. It helps you to actually see something in order to learn from it. Well, here's a visual for you. I love paintings. I love museums. Whenever I'm in a big city, I, I have the opportunity. I try to go check out the art. Well, there is this painting in the San Diego Museum of Art out in California. And this painting was inspired by the verse which we just read, John 1.29. This painting was made almost 500 years ago. But in this painting, there is the lamb. You can see that its legs are tied. It's placed upon a beam, the beam of a cross, because that lamb is getting ready to be sacrificed. This is the picture John was painting with his words when he said, Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when John made that statement, when he said, behold, well, they knew what was coming in one sense. They knew he was getting ready to introduce to them the Messiah because he told him that he would. But when John said, behold, I guarantee you, that's not the kind of Savior people had in mind. The people were looking for a Savior they were looking for a warrior who would liberate them from the Romans, but they weren't looking for that kind of Savior. Well, praise God, God doesn't always send us what we want, but he sends us what we need and what the world needed and what we needed was Jesus, the Lamb of God. 
And when John called Jesus the Lamb of God, there were so many different things that would have immediately rushed into the minds of that Jewish audience that heard him speak, that heard him introduce Jesus in this way. There were a number of lamb metaphors in the Old Testament. When John made that statement, Jesus, the Lamb of God, it reminded them, first of all, of the promise. It reminded them of the promise. Well, what promise? There's this promise that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures. In Genesis chapter 22, there's that great story where God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, and carry him up there to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Of course, we know that God stayed his hand and did not allow him to do that. But as they're heading up there to that mountain, do you remember that question the little boy Isaac asked his daddy? You remember when he said, Daddy, I see the fire and here's the wood, but where is the lamb? I bet he had seen his father sacrifice many lambs before in order to have asked that question. But then in verse 8 it says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham was speaking to Isaac, but there's a sense in which God was speaking to all of us. God will provide the lamb. That was a promise. And this question that Isaac asked his father in Genesis 22, this becomes the question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where's that lamb that God promised who will cleanse us from our sin once and for all? Well, every morning in the temple and every evening in the temple, two times a day, they sacrificed a lamb. They continued to do that as long as there was a temple until it was destroyed in A.D. 70. But every time they sacrificed a lamb, it was a reminder of the seriousness of their sin. It was a reminder that the wages of sin is death. It was also a reminder of that promise that God made that he would one day provide a lamb for us. And if I can just kind of use my sanctified imagination for just a moment, I can imagine as John the Baptist was getting ready to introduce Jesus to the people, perhaps there's a flock of sheep walking by and they see those lambs. Everybody knows where they're going and what's going on? Everyone understands immediately they're on their way to the city. They're on their way to the temple. Those lambs are going to be sacrificed. And it's as if John is saying, those lambs over there are the lambs of men. But this man, Jesus, he is the lamb of God. Those other sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again because the lambs of men could never pay the price for your sin or for mine. But 2,000 years ago, finally, God himself provided the lamb that he promised to give us. And by the way, because God kept that promise, the biggest promise, the greatest promise of all, that's why we can trust God to keep every other promise that he gives us in his word. Well, behold, the lamb would have reminded them of that promise. Behold, the lamb also would have reminded them of the Passover. 
It would have reminded them of the Passover. In fact, we know from John chapter 2 that the Passover was near. The people naturally would have been getting ready. It would have been near impossible for them to hear these words from John and not think about the Passover. That time when God delivered Egypt, um, delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt by means of those ten plagues, when that tenth plague, the final plague, came, God told the people to sacrifice a lamb. Listen to this in Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. They took the blood of that lamb and they painted it on the lintel on the doorpost of the home. And then that night when God's judgment came, if the blood of the lamb was not present, God's judgment fell upon them and the firstborn son died. But if on the other hand, that home was covered, if they were covered by the blood of the lamb, then God's judgment passed over them because God's judgment, in a sense, had already fallen upon the lamb. And likewise, year after year, every Passover feast, the people would sacrifice a lamb, and not just any lamb. It had to be a lamb without blemish, without spot. It had to be a perfect lamb because it represented the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. Because Jesus was innocent, because he had no sin of his own to die for, that's why he could die for ours. Because he was innocent, he could die in the place of the guilty. And all of this is wrapped up in that Passover. They all would have thought about the Passover when John said, Behold the Lamb of God. His statement reminded them of the promise. It reminded them of the Passover. His statement also reminded them of the Messiah. His statement absolutely would have reminded them of the Messiah. They would have thought about Isaiah 53. Probably the greatest messianic passage in all of the Old Testament. Written seven centuries before Jesus was born. But Isaiah the prophet, he prophesied and said, One day God's going to send the Messiah and he will suffer and he will die for the sins of the people. And in that seventh verse, in the middle of that verse, there's this statement he was led as a what? Lamb. To the what? Slaughter. Notice he wasn't driven. He was led because he voluntarily laid down his life on the cross. But he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. No, I don't think Isaiah the prophet had all of the details when he prophesied that. And no, I don't think John the Baptist understood all of the details when he, uh, when he preached that. But somehow they knew and they believed by faith that one day this Savior, this Messiah would come. And when he came, he would somehow, some way, be like a lamb being led to the slaughter. All of these ideas were wrapped up in that statement when John introduced Jesus. Now, technically, in the Greek, there's emphasis on the article. In other words, 
the Lamb of the God. It's as if John is saying, the one and only God has provided one and only Lamb to atone for sin so that we could be reconciled to God and be saved. And here he is. So understand what a shocking statement that was when John made it. It was shocking then. It's shocking now. It's shocking because of what it says about us. If this is what it took for us to be saved, if Jesus, the Lamb of God, had to be led to the slaughter, if he had to die on the cross, what does that say but that we are guilty and we cannot save ourselves? It means we're not near as good as we think we are. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but this world will tolerate Jesus as a moral teacher if that's all he is. And this world around us, it will tolerate Jesus as a religious reformer if that's all he is. But have you noticed this world just will not tolerate Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? You know why? Because if he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that means we have to humble ourselves. And the world's just not willing to do that. It's shocking because of what it says about us. It's shocking because of what it offers. He's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Of the world. That means anyone can come to this Lamb and be saved. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And that's shockingly good news. There's so much more we could say about this statement that John makes about Jesus, but it really was a shocking uh, revelation. But we also see in this a personal encounter. A personal encounter. Look at verse 31. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, you're going to notice twice in this passage, John the Baptist says, I did not know him. And we kind of read this and we wonder, how in the world could John say that? How could John the Baptist say he did not know Jesus? We know that his mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were first cousins. So that made John and Jesus second cousins. Well, John knew Jesus as his cousin, and he knew Jesus well enough that when Jesus came to be baptized by him, he said, wait a second, you ought to be baptizing me, not the other way around. He knew Jesus well enough to know Jesus didn't have any sin from which he needed to repent. John knew all of this about Jesus, and yet there was a time when John had to come to see Jesus as something more. Now, he describes this in verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk more later in our study of John about this baptism of the Holy Spirit that first took place at Pentecost and now happens whenever a man or a woman confesses Christ as Savior and Lord. But John is describing something that happened about six weeks prior to this passage. 
John had been preaching, and he was baptizing uh, people. His baptism was a symbol that a person had repented of their sin and that they were ready. They were willing to receive the Messiah that they had been told was soon going to be revealed. Jesus came, and then his baptism was different. His baptism is a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, which is why when we get to the book of Acts, we see those who had been baptized by John's baptism, but then were baptized again. But John is baptizing. God had told him, one day you're going to baptize somebody special, the Savior, the Messiah, the one everybody's waiting for. And here is how you're going to know. You'll know because when he comes up out of the water, you're going to see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Wouldn't you love to have seen that? He said, you're going to see the Holy Spirit come down, descend like a dove, and then remain upon him. And when you do, that's the one. Well, sure enough, it happened. And guess what? It just turned out that the one turned out to be his cousin, Jesus. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have cousins? All right. How many of you have crazy cousins? Anybody? How many of you are the crazy cousin in your family? Anybody? Some of you. Okay. At least you're honest. Let me ask you this. What would it take to convince you that one of your cousins was the Son of God? What would it take to convince you that one of your cousins was God in human flesh? I've got plenty of cousins. I wouldn't say that about any of them. And guess what? They would not say that about me. It would take something extraordinary, wouldn't it? It would take something overwhelming. Well, here's John. He admits, two times he admits that to him, for most of his life, Jesus was just a cousin. He had to be convinced. But then one day, you know what happened? He had a personal encounter with Jesus. And he came to see Jesus as more than a cousin, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it really is telling that this man, John the Baptist, the man Jesus said was the greatest man ever born, the man Jesus said was the greatest prophet ever born, that even this man, the greatest man and the greatest prophet, could not figure this out on his own. God had to reveal it to him, even to him. Now, that's true for John. That's true for us as well. Listen, we don't come to Christ as a result of our intellectual pursuits because on our own, apart from Christ, we're spiritually dead. We're blind. Our eyes have to be opened. But then in that moment when by the grace of God that happens, when God shows a person their sin, their need, their guilt, when he shows them the reality of Jesus, all of a sudden they are responsible for how they respond. And just 
like John. There are so many people in the world today who know about Jesus. They know about his sayings. They know about the stories that he told. They know about his death and his burial and his resurrection. They know about him, but they do not know him personally because they haven't had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Maybe that's some of you this morning. There had to be that moment in John's life. And let me tell you, there must be that moment in your life and in my life. Jesus said it this way in chapter 3. He said, you must be born again. Now, the good news is, because of Jesus, you can, God can be known. You can know God. You can know him personally. And this morning, if you are willing, you can call upon him. He will hear you and save you. And you can have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And so we see in this introduction, this, this shocking revelation, we see this personal encounter. But then one final thing we see, we see a passionate witness. We see a passionate witness. At the beginning of verse 32, it says, John bore witness. And then in verse 34, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John says, I have seen him. Now, it's interesting. This Greek word, to see, is different from the one in verse 29 when it says, John saw Jesus coming to him. That word means just to look with your eyes, with your physical eyes. But this time when John says, I have seen him, this Greek word, completely different, it means to behold, to look upon, to gaze upon it's like John is saying, now I see him for who he really is. Now I see him in a whole new light. And from that point forward, for the rest of his life, John understood that the purpose of his life was to get off the stage and put all of the focus and all of the attention on Jesus, do whatever he could to make sure everybody knows about him. You know, it's been said everybody is a testimony to something. Maybe you're a testimony to the car you drive. Maybe you are a testimony to the school you graduated from, to the family in which you were born. Maybe you're a testimony to the store where you like to shop. Everybody testifies to something. John said, I testify that Jesus is the Son of God. And now his testimony is our testimony. Now it's our job to say to the world, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you realize this is God's answer to all the big questions the world is asking around us? It really is. Right here. When the world says, why doesn't God do something? What do we say? Behold the Lamb. God has done something. When the world says, is there any hope at all for us today? We say, behold the Lamb. Because Jesus came and is the Lamb of God. Yes, there is hope for every man, woman, boy, and girl. When the world says, is, is there any solution to all this crime and the wars and hatred around us? We say, oh yes, there is a solution Behold the Lamb. 
Behold the Lamb of God. That is God's answer to all of the above. And listen to me very carefully. We'd better not ever forget that. And we'd better not allow any other issue to take the place of that or distract us from that. Because there are so many things that are constantly pulling at us, trying to pull us away from this focus, from this message, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This must be the center of everything we do. Listen, every ministry we perform, every class we teach, every sermon we preach, every song we sing, every decision we make all comes back to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. At the beginning of this message, I told you about a painting in San Diego. You know, I love art. I love paintings. So let me close by telling you about another one. This other painting is found in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan. It is called The Vision of St. John. It was painted in 1614, which means this painting is just over 400 years old. But in this painting, you have these individuals, these people who are crying out to Jesus, who is depicted, once again, as a lamb. But you might notice there's a problem with this painting. In the year 1880, some knucklehead decided that the painting needed to be restored. And so they did what artists do. They began to clean the painting to restore the brightness of the colors. But then, in the name of improvement, someone who thought they were restoring the painting began to trim the painting. At first they just cut a little, and then they cut more. Eventually, they cut off about half of the painting, the half of the painting in which there was the Lamb. And so today, the painting that people see, the painting that to this day hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art is this painting where the people are looking up and they're crying out to the Lamb, but the Lamb is not there. The Lamb is missing. When I look at that painting, I see a picture of most of the people that surround us today. Desperate hopeless, looking up, crying out, but the lamb is missing. And you know what? It's our job to put the lamb back into the painting of their lives. It's our job to say, behold the lamb of God who will take away your sin." Because he died on the cross, and because he rose again, and because he lives, and because he is Lord, he can and he will take away your sin and save you and give you eternal life if you'll receive him today. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the Lamb of God, who suffered and bled and died to take away our sin. There's no other lamb. Nothing else would do. Only the blood of Jesus, only the blood of this lamb was sufficient, was valuable enough, precious enough to pay for the sin debt of every man, woman, boy, and girl, past, present, and future. And so, Father, I pray for those who are here today who perhaps right now their life is like that painting. They're looking up, they're crying out, but the lamb is missing because they still need to come to that point where they call upon him and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, how I pray for them that this would be their day of salvation, that in this moment they would recognize their own sin, their need for a Savior that they would cry out to Jesus and say right now, oh, Jesus, forgive me, save me. Be Lord and Savior of my life. I pray that you'd help every one of us here today to think afresh and anew about those words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because this is the only hope for this world, and this is the greatest news in the world today, the fact that because of Jesus, their sin can be taken away. And you've given this job to us to put the lamb back in the picture of their lives by proclaiming the gospel. Father, I pray that you'd help us in these next moments to take all that we've read and all that we've learned and apply this. And if there is some unconfessed sin in our lives, to see that and confess that. As we observe the Lord's Supper in a moment, that we'd be reminded of the price that was paid when the lamb of God died for us that his body had to be broken, his blood had to be shed, and that we are all saved, all who are saved, by the same broken body and by the same shed blood of Jesus. Help us to observe this in a manner that is worthy, even though we can never be worthy, but help us to observe this in a manner that is worthy. Prepare our hearts even now, and we'll give you all the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name.